Welcome to Media in Minutes. This is your host, Angela Toole. This podcast features in-depth interviews with those who report on the world around us. They share everything from their favorite stories to what happened behind the lens and give us a glimpse into their world. From our studio here at Communications Redefined, this is Media in Minutes. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome travel and pop culture journalist Rachel Chang. Her editorial career began chasing celebrities as a magazine editor, and along the way, she also started chasing passport stamps, writing for publications including Condé Nast Traveler, Travel and Leisure, Airbnb Magazine, The Discoverer, Lonely Planet, and The Washington Post. This Californian-turned-New Yorker is also a solo travel advocate, dumpling addict, and reluctant runner who managed to finish the New York City Marathon three times. I've worked with her personally, and I'm so excited to have her on today. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Angela. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for joining me. I have to say, I love reading your articles and adventures. And even in 2020, during a pandemic, you wrote 290 stories for 24 outlets among editing magazines and other content creation. That is impressive. Well, thank you. It was definitely an interesting year with a lot of challenges and definitely had to practice the the word pivot, I feel like the word pivot was on everybody's mind. How do we pivot our, our attention? And I think I, I had been stuck on this idea of diversification, like how we diversify our investments and we diversify other parts of our life. And I just started realizing that I should diversify my career. And I think it really paid off when the pandemic hit and I was able to stay quite busy, which I'm very, very grateful for. So you were able to pivot very quickly or at what point did you think, okay, this is the time to pivot? (laughs) Well, I had actually been a magazine editor with a full-time job for 15 years and then was at a full-time travel job for a couple of years and had been wanting to go into freelancing. But, you know, I, was, I wanted to have all my ducks in a row, have my finances in a solid place and have kind of everything set before I took that leap. And so in order to, because I just was nervous about that moment of being like, what's next? Oh my gosh, what if there's no work? And so in order to do that, I kind of started carving out different slices. Um, obviously, travel is my greatest love and really want, where I wanted to uh, spend most of my attention, but I had come from an entertainment background, so I kind of wanted to also keep that in my back pocket. And then some opportunities came up in other spheres that I just hadn't even considered writing in, but I didn't turn anything down. So like I started writing for a tech blog that I had no idea what some of the stories were really about, but it was such a different use of my brain. So I think just learning and experimenting and having done that, it, I, I had been doing, so I finally went full-time freelance May of 2019. So I was just not quite a year into it when the pandemic hit. So I had just enough time experimenting with different um, realms that it all came together right when everything hit and I was able to stay quite busy. I'm very lucky that I had actually overcommitted when the lockdown first started in March, for better or worse. I was editing three magazines at the time, as well as working on other stories. So, um, So yeah, I just kind of got into this groove of keeping 
obviously most my, my focus was always travel, but also being open to things outside of it, which obviously also helped my travel stories because in essence, it's all lifestyle and everything ties together. Right. So what was your favorite this past year that you worked on? Ooh, good question. Uh, I feel like in the moment, I was already a germaphobe before the pandemic. And just like as lockdown started, I had just written a story about what I carry in my, uh, what I pack in my carry-on bag, which I understand is completely ridiculous because I've traveled with a mask for the last 10 years and I've used it maybe twice. You were ahead of time, right? <laughs> so it was already, so I just happened to write that. And like a story like that ended up helping me kind of springboard into writing a lot of germaphobe related stories at the beginning of the pandemic, like how to clean your luggage and how to pack your car um, to avoid messes. So I kind of accidentally had that beat going into it. But I think so a lot of those were kind of written from home. And, you know, of course, armchair reporting is not what you want to do. But the pandemic really forces to exercise that muscle and figure out how to do reporting remotely, accurately, and still feel like you were putting a firsthand spin on it. So I think a lot of it was reflecting back on past travels and using that as a springboard for um, stories. But I did eventually get <laughs> out of the house. <laughs> um, I started, I'm grateful to have a car here. I live in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I started exploring a lot. And my favorite story I wrote was that I was able to go down to a cranberry bog. Those photos looked amazing, by the way. <laughs> Yes, it was just like, first of all, to have an in-person experience after having been um, in quarantine for so long was definitely just a joy in and of itself to be able to uh, get a behind the scenes tour and really have that time since you know, normally a lot of these cranberry bogs would be having tour travelers come by and experience it during the season. And that wasn't happening this year. I got a little bit more of an intimate experience and this was just the most delightful cranberry bog farm. Um, like it had been in the family for, I believe, the fifth, five generations. And they're part of the Ocean Spray um, Collective. And it was just so fascinating to learn how it all worked. But of course, I, was a, I have no balance and I have no coordination. So I just figured I was going to fall into the, as soon as we stepped into that bog. And instead it was the opposite reaction of a complete sense of relaxation. And I didn't expect that. So being able to experience something so emotional and tangible like that in real life was such a, such a blessing. And that was definitely one of, one of the most uh, my favorite story to have written just because I was able to highlight the local agriculture and the, how a local farm has, because things didn't stop for them. The cranberries still grow every year. <laughs> the pandemic didn't stop the cranberries from growing. Um, so it was just fascinating to understand how the industry worked, tie it into local tourism and also have a first person experience in there. Oh, that's great. So what about, this is going to be an even harder question, <laughs> favorite <laughs> stories of all time since you've been, since you've been writing and even I'm sure they tie to favorite destinations or activities. What would you uh, say there? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think I have to go with Bermuda. Um, so I was sent there um, for an assignment to do a first person solo travel story. 
And I pitched a bunch of different ideas, but I also knew the one I was most scared of would make the best story. And of course, that's the one that um, it was for Airbnb magazine. And of course, that was the one that they set to focus on. Of course. (laughs) So I have a weird fear of fish. (laughs) Really? (laughs) We need to know a little bit more about this. (laughs) I do eat fish. I do eat sushi and sashimi, but I... I have a fear of looking at fish. Like, I don't know what it is. I might actually be afraid of the scales. It's like a knee jerk reaction. It's not something like my coworkers at my first job had goldfish and beta fish on their desks and I couldn't go near them. I'm just terrified of fish. (laughs) (laughs) So of course I pitched the idea. Um, Of course, Bermuda's clear waters is so great for snorkeling and scuba diving. So of course I pitched that idea thinking, oh, please don't pick this. Of course that was the one they chose. For better or worse, uh, Mother Nature was a little bit on my side in that uh, the conditions weren't suitable for scuba diving the days I was there. So the original thought was to, for me to learn to scuba dive and conquer my fear of fish. Um, but instead it was a little bit pre-season because obviously the challenge of having for long lead magazine was to uh, bank the story so that it would come out by the time the season started. So I was there, I believe in March, uh, a couple of years ago. And so I, when they said that the scuba diving um, boat wasn't going out, I had to start calling every water sport on the Island because I just thought, you know, I've been sent here to do this task that I can't do. And I just felt like I can't go home without a story. Can't give up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have to have a story. I have to create an experience, which is difficult. Um, so fortunately, I uh, found the most delightful gentleman who taught uh, wakeboarding, which I wasn't even sure what it was <laughs> before I could, before he said he would take me out on the boat. And so basically, I realized it's kind of like the snowboarding of the water, right? It's like, instead of water skiing, it's on one board. So, um, but when I got there, I couldn't find him. I was like, oh my gosh, what kind of situation am I in? And I suddenly heard a loud scream. (laughs) And I realized he hadn't even, it was so early in the season that he hadn't even, his boat hadn't gone out yet. So he was cleaning off the boat from the entire season just to take me out. And something had grown. So something was really sharp. And so he just, he totally cut himself. I felt horrible. (laughs) But he was so amazing, so lovely and took me out. And I actually managed to stand up and go for a mile, which I guess is, I didn't realize that the biggest part is just being able to stand up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But eventually it ended up being that the next day I found a place that to go snorkeling. And the third day I was there, the scuba diving um, trips were on. So it ended up being kind of a lovely narrative of skimming the waters, then taking a shallow dive, then taking a deep dive. So it ended up being a lovely story in that end. And I think what really made it was that I was not successful with the scuba diving. (laughs) I will give you a spoiler that it did not go well because I was so nervous that when I stepped into the water, the tank, hit my head. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't take a big enough of a step. So it hit my head. And then I don't, I mean, and I also get seasick. So between that and not being nauseous, I ended up throwing up into the water. <laughs> oh, so needless to say, you won't be doing that again, or you haven't done that again? 
I haven't done it again. I'm very mad at myself that there was a beautiful uh, shipwreck right under my feet and I didn't get to see it because I managed to, I mean, the photos I saw from the others um, on the trip were absolutely gorgeous. And I was just like, here I am. (laughs) Like, get me off of this boat. Oh my God, I can't believe you just did. You guys were on the same trip and we had such different experiences. Oh, that sounds like quite an experience. (laughs) So what about a story or stories that you've wanted to tell, but didn't make it into print? Oh, now we're getting some juicy stuff. Uh, (laughs) I was in Turkey a couple of years. Oh gosh, a couple of years. Yes. I guess my sense of time is off because we lost the year, but yes. (laughs) Feels Uh, like five years, doesn't it? And I went with Intrepid and it was this absolutely amazing trip where we went to, like, I just was completely unaware of Turkey's um, coast. I just thought thought of it being Istanbul and Cappadocia, and I just never thought about the coastline. And during one of the stays on the cities on the southern coast, we went to this abandoned city called Kayakoy. I hope I'm saying that right. And it was just completely spectacular because it was an abandoned city that was still so intact. Like it was like the, like being in the forum, but obviously not as, not as old at all. Um, It was from the century. And uh, I was just so taken by it. And we were there at sunset and the story behind it was definitely heart-wrenching because it was part of a population exchange because of the tensions between Turkey and Greece. So uh, when I got back, I pitched a story and I started writing it. And as I started reporting it out, I just realized that there wasn't very much information anywhere. And I started contacting, you know, all every source I could think of from professors at universities to um, tourism representatives and just kind of across the board. And I just either wasn't getting an answer or I'd be pointed in other directions. And like, there was so little information that I couldn't understand how this gorgeous place that reflected such a kind of harrowing point in the history had so little out there. So in the end, I realized that even though I brought my own personal experience there and thinking about what had happened in this place and kind of tying that to the haunting past, there was just not quite enough to, to be able to back it up substantially in facts. Uh, and I think the tensions are still there between about this place. And I think it just represents such, so much. So I do hope I eventually be doing it remotely from, a, from abroad was very difficult and um, not being able to kind of be on the ground and really find the ins and outs of it. Right. I'm sure we'd all love to hear that story too. We'll watch for it. What about where have you traveled that has really surprised you? I mean, obviously that sounds like one of them, but what any, any others that you could talk about? Sometimes it's even being in places that are what you expect, but then finding the little surprises within them and just following your instincts. I did a funny experiment when I went to Portland, Oregon, uh, gosh, two years ago now, right? Um, And I purposely didn't do any research on the city. I just, all I did was book a hotel and a flight and I just got Mm. there (laughs) and started walking and I didn't let myself use my phone. And I think that really allowed me to travel in a different way. And I'm lucky I picked in retrospect because I didn't know anything at the time. I mean, I'm grateful I picked a safe location and I that and 
a, such a walkable city too. I mean, I was able to get to some of the places that uh, I eventually ended up at one of those information booths where they were like trying to tell me all these like secret places to go. And I was like, I've been there, I've been there, I've been there. And I like hadn't even looked at a map till they were showing me a tangible map because I didn't want to pull out my phone. So I think sometimes it's just even taking a place that, and I was just going off instinct of what I knew, thought I knew about the, the city. So I think it's sometimes just about finding, um, taking a place you know and finding the unexpected there, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. I think that a lot of us tend to overplan our travel and to see what everyone else does and follow that same plan. And I'm sure we could learn a lot from from not doing it that way. Yeah, I think we're all very used to what I've been calling checklist travel, where we're like, okay, mm-hmm. I have to go to Paris, I have to see the Eiffel Tower and the Louvre and the um, and sail down the Seine. But it's the moments when you're walking down the back streets and you discover that little bistro and you discover that little sandwich or whatever it might be, where you really, I feel like those are the more, most memorable experiences and the surprising delight. Yes. How do you tend to find your stories? I mean, I, I don't want to keep... <laughs> using the same point, but I really do think a lot of it is just um, instinct. Like, I mean, especially when you're in a place and, and you're just kind of following your instinct about what could be become a story. Sometimes it is just like, oh, look at that cafe. Look at that person behind it. I wonder what their story is. Or um, being in a place, once you're immersed in a place, I feel like the stories kind of emerge when you kind of um, separate yourself from that idea of I have to see this at this time which I am so guilty of too because I I'm like if I came this far I'm going to pack in everything so I think I am trying to kind of split myself apart from that and learn how to follow my instincts and I feel like I can find stories better that way when I'm in a place but from afar in the last year finding stories obviously has been different and I've depended a lot on um on publicists like yourself and um because I can't be there and while the virtual and the remote events have been so exciting and a great way to experience places from afar I feel like the eyes and ears of actually being somewhere like you can't make up for that so a lot of it is just connecting with people and really trying to find uh, find the best stories and what or build stories out of that. So, you know, obviously, as we've talked about, this year has been quite the challenge. What do you feel from what you've learned this year, uh, the future holds for travel? I feel like a lot of us, or I should say, at least for myself, I was so focused on always going on a trip, planning the next trip, and just always looking ahead or being in the moment experiencing and never taking that time to pause and think about the impact I was having when I traveled. So I think this year has actually been a welcome pause. I mean, I think about some things that I do at home that I don't do on the road. Like I will obviously use a, the same, like I'll, I'll, I don't use plastic straws. And then when I'm traveling on one trip, how many plastic straws do I go through? Like little things like that. Also, where do I buy my souvenirs? You know, when I'm in a place, I always think, oh, I'll never come back here. I need to just buy it from the easiest place. I'll just buy it from like the souvenir shop when I probably should be really looking at where this came from and really supporting the local artisans. So I think it's been a welcome pause into community engagement and how we can better um, how we 
as travelers, I feel like part of our jobs in a way is to highlight what the, the impact the local communities have on our world. And we do that by our dollars and where we choose to spend them. So I think that that, I hope that that lesson um, will, will um, go forth when we start traveling more in the coming year, uh, coming year, I hope. Um, <laughs> yes. and, and I also just think in terms of um, the way we travel, like how many times did I like go back and forth to Europe when I could have like combined them all in one trip and really spent more time in the location, really got to know it. So I think this advent of slow travel had been talked about, but I think we will hopefully start practicing it more. I think our mentality was always go, go, go. And instead of that, I feel like when we start traveling again, it will be more, what can I bring to a community and what can I gain from that community that I can bring back into my life? Yes. Yes. Now I'm sure everyone wants to hear a little bit uh, more besides travel and talking about you personally, you said you were a reluctant runner, but how is that possible if you finished the New York city marathon three times? I hate running. Like I probably need to go for a run today. And I just like, don't want to, I can't, like, I just can't, <laughs> I, I, will, I am really good at excuses. I just can never get out the door. I hate it. And I, when I'm in the moment, I don't want to start, but if you give me a plan and tell me to stick to it, I will. And I will get to the goal. And in a way it's kind of like traveling, right? It's like you come up with a yes. plan and you stick to it and you get to the end of the trip. And so I, um, I had st- I'm like by no means a runner and a friend of mine told- was just so confident that I could run a 5k. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm, I can't do this. And so I ran a few races with her and I loved crossing finish lines as silly as it sounds. <laughs> and so it just started building from there. And one year I was like, oh, I'll just enter the lottery and see what happens. Um, because it's so hard to get into the New York City Marathon. Right. And of course I got in. I was like, oh gosh, whatever I got myself into. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned that it was an eight, that most people do an 18 week um, training plan. And my official day one, I was actually in Rio. Um, so I think that made it fun that it was an activity that I could do anywhere I was. So I ended up going from Rio to Argentina doing the first few weeks of training abroad. And that just made it exciting that it didn't matter where I was, I would be able to, um, to keep on going towards this goal. And then the race itself was the best tour of New York City I've ever had. It was like every borough came to life when you go through it. It's kind of like as if you're going through the small world at Disneyland and every country comes to life. It was the same thing, just the personality and the uh, essence of every borough, just like spread, like the music in Brooklyn and the people dancing in the streets in Harlem. It was just, it is just such an experience that you can only get by going through it. So I ran it in real life twice and was done. Like that's enough. 26.1 miles is not fun on your body. (laughs) I still don't walk properly. And then this year during the pandemic, I I decided to do it virtually because I thought this will at least give me a goal and a reason to get out of the house. And I ended up running it up and down the Hudson River, which actually was in and of itself a totally different experience because I did it by myself. But it was also very fulfilling in a different way. I bet. And before we go, we have to talk about dumplings. <laughs> it sounds like you are an expert. So what are your favorites and any advice for dumpling newbies? 
What I love about dumplings is that every country has their version of it. So whether you're in Poland and having pierogies or you're in Argentina having empanadas, there's always something that involves substance being put into a doughy, doughy layer. And um, growing up in from an Asian American family, uh, my parents are from Taiwan, you know, I just remember as a kid sitting around the um, table and we each had our job and we would like do one part of hand making dumplings. So when I moved to New York and I, when I first got here and I was so excited to find out that you could get like five dumplings for a dollar. So, <laughs> so of course I thought it was the best thing ever. And I would, I just started experimenting and tasting a lot of the places in Chinatown. And eventually I wrote one of my first um, travel stories about, I decided not to do it on the timing or the taste. I mean, sorry, not about the price or the taste, but I did it on how quickly you could get the dumplings. So I timed yeah. them. <laughs> to see how quickly it, from my order until it was in my hand um just to put a little different twist on it um so that was one of my first stories and then a friend of mine who runs a um college program saw it and asked me to give her students a tour <laughs> so my one little taste of uh, being a tour guide was that I led a dump dollar dumpling tour of Chinatown in Manhattan oh wow <laughs> But I just think there's something very comforting about it. And so many countries that I've been to, whether I've been on a Habitat Humanity trip in Poland, or I actually went with a choir that I, um, I was in here in Hoboken, we, we performed in Argentina, making, I mean, empanadas there and making pierogies in Poland, they were always part of the experience. And I've been to Turkey where we made Monty. And I just feel like there's always something of that sort. And it's, the, it's, I think the making it and creating it is just as much a part of each individual culture as the product, as the final product is. And there's just something very comforting that's all wrapped up in a dumpling. Yes. So do you have a favorite? Or is that too hard to pick? Oh, well, I've been very lucky that a lot of places in Chinatown actually delivered to me in New Jersey. So I've been very well stocked. I, well, here's another fun fact. <laughs> I usually have up to 200 frozen dumplings in my freezer at any time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's not for large parties? <laughs> for me, I think, especially when I was traveling a lot, because I ended up traveling in 2019 at least once a month, often up to three times even. So when it's hard to keep your fridge stocked in, with, um, with, with anything that won't go bad. So dumplings became the easiest thing to always keep that if I was only home for a few days, I could just, there's just so many ways too. I could either boil it or I could pan fry it. And I remember as a kid, like my grandma would make my cousin um, dumplings for breakfast. It was like four dumplings were, was breakfast and this many dumplings was lunch and this many dumplings was dinner. So I, it can be every meal. <laughs> So I think it's just always a fun thing. So two of my favorites, Namwa in, in New York City has been has really pivoted to an amazing um, frozen delivery service. And they have all sorts of different um, kinds of dumplings, not just your traditional um, traditional shape ones, but also like um, soup dumplings and um, um, shumai and um and so does a little place I found right before the pandemic called Three Times. They have even more different kinds and they have, it comes with very thorough cooking instructions and I'm so not a cook, so I really need those. So Three Times and Namwa in, um, in Manhattan have been my 
my main sources of dumplings during the pandemic. Okay. That is going to be my first stop in New York city next time. Trying to, t- <laughs> I have to find both of those and try some of the dumplings. <laughs> for sure. And I will, I can also take you on a dollar dumpling tour. Oh, that would be amazing. I cannot wait. I am going to hold you to that. <laughs> of course. I'm excited to do it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, Rachel. Of course. And thank you so much for doing this, Angela. This was so much fun. You can find Rachel online at rachelchang.com or on Twitter and LinkedIn at Rachel Chang and Instagram and Facebook at Rachel S. Chang. That's all for this episode of Media in Minutes, a podcast by Communications Redefined. You can find more at communicationsredefined.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Angela Toole. Talk to you next time.